So as I launch in, I would like to first plainly state that I think social media is great. Just want to get that out of the way. The chief twit aside, um, I believe that the wide variety of ways in which people are now able to connect is an incredible boon to humankind. We are able to communicate across tens of thousands of miles with seemingly limitless numbers of people with about as much effort as it takes to tickle somebody. And like tickling, for the most part, the result includes a positive response. When I think that I maintain contact with friends from halfway across the world who I haven't seen in years, I'm just blown away. You might even say I'm tickled. Social media has also been an incredible benefit to people who are challenged by meeting in person. Whether it is because of physical access or differing communication styles, it has allowed people who would in an earlier time have been shut off or worse, shut away from community to be invited into dialogue and contact. Social media has also changed the way we engage language altogether. New words, new rhythms and cadences, new priorities and new punctuation are all a part of the evolution. For us English language purists and English majors, those who are still committed to two spaces after a period <laughs> on typed text, this has been particularly galling and emoji mock us with every semicolon wink and asterisk kiss. <sighs> Social media is, for now, the apex of the information age and seems poised to dump us squarely in the next age, which is already being dubbed as the imagination age, one of tremendous creativity. There is little possibility of us backtracking or undoing what the information age, and specifically social media, has brought us. Unless, of course, someone figures out a way to program all of that capability directly into our brains. And I hope they don't. And yet, with all of that advancement, only 47% of the world has internet. Out of the 35 countries that I was able to find where there is no internet, 22 of them are on the African continent. Developing nations lag far behind the rest of the world in internet access and therefore social media. And of course, these same nations that have no access are all former European colonies and all people of color. So it is really more correct to say that social media has changed the Western and economically westernized world, but I don't want to get ahead of myself here. Toward the end of 2015, I decided to step back significantly from social media. I was very concerned that as a minister, it would make me highly vulnerable in a variety of ways. And in fact, you may notice that if you've been able to actually find me on Facebook, which is not easy, um, I may not have friended you back yet, 
And it's not that I'm being rude, but rather I'm still trying to figure out how to manage my social media presence in this new role. I'm determined to keep a presence and be able to share with people through social media, but I want to be sure that however I do it, it doesn't contribute to any of what I see as abuse happening in the social media environment, hence today's message. So last week, I was asked by a friend to look at a conversation that was taking place in a closed group to which I belong on Facebook. As I started reading through the conversation, which began with a very innocent question, I realized that I was witnessing a slow motion verbal attack from the person who responded to the question. As more defenders piled on, I had the feeling I was reading an online equivalent of a schoolyard brawl. The original question was fairly thoroughly silenced and the defenders continued to justify and pronounce. It is not the first time I've seen this behavior online. I have unfortunately been privy to way too many people who are determined to speak their truth or tell it like it is with little regard for how their words may land in the world of unerasable conversation threads. As I witnessed this most recent one, I had to ask myself, why? Why is this happening? The people involved are intelligent and usually thoughtful. Why would people be worked up to a level of self-righteousness that would never be tolerated in person? And in that question, I answered my question, because they're not in person. The distance of social media makes it very easy to hide behind manifesto-like language that lets people portray themselves as the lone voice of truth. Now, I thought briefly about engaging in the conversation because I could easily see the holes in the argument of those who were being defensive. Then I thought again. I realized that if I engage in that moment, I would likely add to the fire. I also might be received as Adam, or I might be received as the minister of First Parish, or both. I do not ever want to abuse the free pulpit I've been given to engage. I do not ever want to be associated with petty squabbling or, more importantly, demeaning and defensive language and behavior. So I turned away from the post and committed to changing the environment that enabled that situation to arise. I'm now actively taking direct steps offline to call the people who fostered that moment back into covenant. I also decided to write this sermon that will be recorded and published and will hopefully serve as a cautionary tale to all of us about how social media makes it easy for all of us to fall into abusing the privilege of having the opportunity to speak our truth. This is a blessing and a danger Social media is an echo chamber. 
It is the ultimate game of operator, where one message is communicated at the start and then a completely different message arrives on the other end at twice the volume. The positive side of that echo chamber is something like the hashtag movements, such as Black Lives Matter or Me Too, both of which use the echo chamber to beautiful effect. But the downside is the very concept of fake news and coming to grips with the exploitable openings that such echo chambers create. Now, the media echo chamber is not new. No. Last week, I wrote a blog post about Martin Luther and the Reformation. My writing was prompted by reading a book called Brand Luther. The book describes the incredible impact that Martin Luther had on the world. Not so much in terms of his theology, but more in terms of leveraging the technology of his day, 1517 to be exact, printing. He leveraged it to spread a message. The broad publication of Martin Luther's work, the 95 Theses, and including also the German language Bible and multiple pamphlets with his thinking, it was responsible for what we now call the Reformation actually taking hold. The birth of Protestantism was a direct result of the mass-produced written word, 16th century social media gone viral, and made available to Europeans. Of course, the success of this early echo chamber was built upon there being enough people who could read which prompted me to look up another book. And thinking about world history and literacy, I picked up the book that's called Word by Word, Emancipation and the Act of Writing. It reveals the stories behind some of the writing by slaves in the United States before emancipation. This book by Christopher Hager details the challenges of deciphering inconsistent spelling and grammar in these letters, but also it emphasizes how slaves were very aware of the importance of having the ability to put words in one place and have them read and received by someone far away. This is the same basic premise upon which Martin Luther's success was built, sharing words and as a result sharing meaning. Slaves in the United States were almost uniformly prevented from learning to write or read, and this is one reason that the research in this book is so compelling. It's also a reminder of what a stark contrast our modern-day echo chamber is with the exclusive and segregated listening room of the 19th century and before. Just so we can Put a point on it, here is a reminder of some of the laws that obstructed literacy for blacks prior to emancipation in the United States. There was the 1740 Negro Act. It was a comprehensive act passed in South Carolina that made it illegal for enslaved Africans to move abroad, assemble in groups, raise food, earn money, learn to write, though reading was not prescribed. And additionally, owners were permitted to kill rebellious slaves if necessary. There was an act in 1819 in Missouri that prohibited the assembling or teaching slaves to read or write, one in Georgia in 1829 that prohibited teaching blacks to read, punished by a fine and imprisonment, and then in 1832, Alabama and Virginia 
prohibited whites from teaching blacks to read or write, and it was punished by fines and floggings. In 1833, Quaker educator Prudence Crandall attempted to open a school for black girls in Canterbury, Connecticut. The reaction by the state of Connecticut was something that we now call the Black Law, and I will read part of it for you. An act, in addition to the act entitled an act for the admission and settlement of inhabitants to towns. Whereas attempts have been made to establish literary institutions in this state for the instruction of colored persons belonging to other states and countries, which would tend to the great increase of the colored population in the state, and thereby to the injury of the people. Therefore, be it enacted by the Senate and House of Representatives in General Assembly convened that no person shall set up or establish in this state any school, academy, or literary institution for the instruction or education of colored persons who are not inhabitants of the state, nor instruct or teach in any school, academy, or literary institution whatsoever in the state or harbor or board for the purposes of attending or being taught or instructed in any such school, academy, or literary institution, any colored person who is not an inhabitant of any town in this state, without the consent in writing first obtained of a majority of the civil authority. So just to clarify, according to Connecticut law, um, blacks were prohibited from being inhabitants because they had no civil rights. Crandall, with the help and encouragement of William Lloyd Garrison from Boston, was successful in opening the school, but she was brought to court in violation of the black law. Although she persisted and the case was ultimately overturned, she was eventually forced to reckon with the public resistance to her efforts. There's a website on the incident that describes how, on the night of September 9th, 1834, an angry mob broke in and ransacked the school building. With clubs and iron bars, the mob terrorized the students and broke more than 90 windows. What the black law and local ostracism had not been able to accomplish, this mob achieved. Fearing for the girl's safety, Crandall closed the school the following morning. The history of literacy-driven disenfranchisement in the United States still resonates in the disparities we see in data about who can read and who cannot today, and yes, those disparities follow racial lines with black and Latino populations at double the rates of white illiteracy. What was true in the 19th century is still true today. Literary, literacy is a primary form of access in our society. Literacy impacts everything from family unity to voting to entry into higher education, etc. It has also been linked directly to health and economic outcomes. It follows on that if you do not have access in these other areas, 
you are likely to also be limited in the access you have to social media. Now, not everyone is going to go out and write a book, but increasingly, the place and the mechanism through which voices are heard and taken seriously is through social media. We watched a president tweet his way to the White House. Typos and lies and all. If someone doesn't have access to social media, whether we like it or not, they are going to be left out of the dialogue of progress. What is more, if they cannot read or if their reading level is insufficient to navigate social media or to acquire access to social media, they have no chance of being heard. But I want to bring this back to the toxic misuse of social media where a my way or the highway tone of defensive behavior can too quickly transform this miraculous tool into a bludgeon. This is particularly relevant for those of us who seek to advocate for those who may not have access or who we perceive as not having a voice in public discourse. As Unitarian Universalists, I believe we are called to take an intelligent and just approach to these efforts that avoids the pitfalls of self-righteousness. We are a covenantal faith. As such, we have our mutual promises to one another to maintain our relationships. Sure, we may share values and agree on principles, but we are also committed to our independent search for truth and meaning. We agree to disagree. But the only way that this works is if we actively engage in creating and upholding our covenant with one another to do no harm. Most every Unitarian Universalist covenant functions as both a window and a mirror. It is a speaker and a microphone. It is inspiration and expiration. Our covenants allow us to receive respect and room and agency for our own independent selves, but they also ask us to give respect, room, and agency to the independence of others. Balancing the receiving and giving requires humility. And sometimes we may be in danger of forgetting this last part. If we are always so hell-bent on making our point, on sending our message out into the world, how are we ever going to know that the message was actually heard unless we can be quiet long enough to hear what is being said back to us. Frankly, sometimes we just need to shut up and listen. I, for one, would love to experience more of that in social media. Our education and our literacy is a gift. But in a world where only 47% have access to the internet, social media is still truly a miracle. How dare we who have access and education and literacy take this gift for granted and ever sink to using it for petty self-aggrandizement or worse, as a tool of oppression and bullying. 
How dare we ever let any of our community fall that far out of covenant? Our ability to communicate the way we do with one another is a gift. Looking at the history, our literacy is also not only a gift, but it is a hard-won right that we are still fighting for. As communication gets easier and hopefully more accessible to all, it doesn't release us from any of the responsibilities that we have when we are face-to-face. Let us always speak our truth, but let that truth reflect our commitment to the humility that lets us hear and acknowledge other people's truths as well. May it be so.